Matthew chapter 7 and 8 are our goal tonight. I'll be able to have some liberties to go to some places I wasn't able to go on Sunday morning in chapter 8. Chapter 7, let's begin by going back to chapter 5, if you're just joining our study in Matthew. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar. All three of them together put together a pretty complete picture of the life of Jesus, especially as we look at... um, uh, in chapter 8, the detail that's added is very important from Luke that we don't have in Matthew. So we begin in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now when we talk about the Beatitudes, and the Mount of Beatitudes, we're thinking that there was all these people and um, the crowds that were there, and that's not, not the case. Um, the Mount of Beatitudes was delivered to the disciples. And when he came down, if you turn to chapter 7, last two verses, 5, 6, and 7 are the teachings of the Beatitudes. And when we get to the last two verses of 7, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. So let's go back to chapter 7, because that's one that we did not do verse by verse. We did an overview of chapter 8 on Sunday, but we'll be able to fill in the blanks there and go to a couple of places I mentioned earlier that we did not cover. And um, as we look at the first six verses here, let's begin with, um, judge not that you be not judged. And I'll stop right there and have you go down to verse 15. And he says, beware of false prophets. Question. How can you beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing unless you name names of who the false prophets are and judge them as being false prophets? So the Bible declares that the spiritual man who is born again will judge all things. And we're to sift it through the lens of this book. When we hear a teaching or a doctrine, or um, um, what the Bible calls discernment and wisdom, that needs to be applicable to any any given different situation that you're going to run across. Um, Give you an example. I try to figure out as quick as I can. If I have time with somebody, um, hmm, do they the Lord or don't they? And I'm throwing out the line and jigging it a little bit, see if there's a bite, see where they're at. I'm making discerning judgment decisions on whether or not this person is born again or are they just going to church. I had a chance to talk to somebody just this last week and um, found out they go to church, but I knew for certain they didn't know the Lord. And uh, so when we get into judging, that's not being, I'm not judging a motive of why a person does what he does. So let's read this again, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what the same measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Another way of saying this is you reap what you sow. And the idea here is I'm not supposed to look at Fernando and think, why does he really make those good ribs? Does he do it because he wants me to be happy eating them? 
Or does he want me to know that he makes the best ribs in this, in this state, country, world? How's that? <laughs> no, it's um, something that, um, that we call it fruit inspecting without being condescending to another person. If they're doing something, I can't look in your heart uh, to determine that the motive uh, for the reason you're doing what you're doing. Now, there's coming a time. It's called the great white throne judgment. Then and only then will the Lord, who knows the motive of the heart, uh, will judge because he's the only one who has the ability to look into a person's heart and knows why they're doing what they're doing. That's not my job. And um, so when we read this verse here, then it turns the picture back on ourselves before we become critical of a person's, why are you really doing that? To um, The Lord says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye and look at the plank that's in your eye, you hypocrite? First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will... See clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. I, the idea here is something little. I call this nitpicking. Everybody knows a nitpicker. They go around, uh, they're busybodies, they're involved in other people's business, they're not satisfied unless they're involved in other people's business. And um, um, so self-examination before you go try to correct somebody else, make sure that you're not, uh, doing the same thing by being nitpicky. I think chapter 6 is a whole different thought and a whole different idea because it says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Dogs is a, a derogatory term for Gentiles. Nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn and tear you in pieces. To me, this is engaging with the preciousness of what is holy. What is holy? This book is holy. And if I get into a conversation with somebody about the Lord, and they immediately uh, become sarcastic or um, uh, have an, an attitude, and you know clear well that there's absolutely no way that they, they want to hear, they're making that clear, to hang in there and continue to take that, this, which is very, very precious, these are the pearls right here, knowing that they're just going to trample them underfoot. They could really care less. This is too important. So all that to say this, when I come to a conclusion with somebody that they're not interested in this, matter of fact, they're on the other end of the spectrum, they're very sarcastic about the gospel, um, then uh, you realize you're wasting your time. Jesus said it this way to his disciples. If you go into a town and they enter, allow you to come in and they don't hear what you want to say and they don't want to hear what you have to say, this is what the Lord told them to do. Turn your back, walk away, and while you're walking, make sure you shake all that dust that was in that city, get it off you. And you keep right on going to somebody else who will hear. Some people will spend their whole life 
you know, try to get something through to, to somebody that it's not going to be. And unfortunately, there are people that are just that stubborn. And, um, you know, there's people, we pray all the time for people, Lord, whatever it takes, you know, to break this person down so that they'll listen. But um, God will not override a person's free will. And it's not my job to do that either. And especially when it comes to the importance of this book. Um, basically, Jesus was saying, that, that city right there isn't worthy to hear what you guys have to say. Turn around. You may not think that sounds very Christian-like, but I'm not telling you this. Jesus is telling you that. Turn your back and pray for them that they'd come to a place of being receptive. And that might take some time. So in the first um, uh, seven verses here, this is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. When you try to talk to um, um, uh, someone, you say, oh, you're judging me. Well, um, no, but discernment is necessary. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, but he who is spiritual, a born-again person, he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now, in verse 7 through 11, um, we're going to be talking about the leper in chapter 8, verse 1. That was our text on Sunday morning. Who went looking for the Lord. <clears throat> and he says, Lord, if you're willing. And we spent a good part of our chapter just talking about the goodness of God. And he's wanting to, he's able, he's willing. He wants to be strong on your behalf. But at the same time, he's not going to come barging into your life and just do it. He wants us to seek him. And he wants to be strong on our behalf if we want him to. And another way of saying it in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, and knock, and it will be opened to you. This is now pursuing the Lord and asking the Lord, Lord, I give you permission. You have a green light from me. This is according to your will. Lord, I pray that, that um, um, Lord willing, you would do this in my life. For anyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now, these same scriptures in Luke are a little bit different. And I'll read verse 11, and I'll explain the difference from Luke. what Luke adds here in verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, in Luke's same account of this very same um, teaching about asking, you know, if you're, if you're hungry, you know, you come home, I'm starving. And, you know, mom's going to put something out and take care of it. And he said if humans understand that principle because they love their kids, they're going to, make sure they're fed, well, then how much more a loving father who is perfect is going to give good things. Well, the good things in Luke's account 
is how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? So people say, how do I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Ever hear that question? How do I get that fire? How does that happen exactly? Well, exactly what Luke chapter, I think it's 11, 11 says, that you simply ask. How did you get saved? You asked Jesus into your heart. You gave him permission to come in. Now we're going to be talking about demons in just a little bit here. And I believe there is um, uh, written or unwritten guidelines in the spiritual realm that God has set up as far as man's free will is concerned. The Lord is straightforward in telling you how to go about doing it. We're studying it right now. I'm a good father, and if you give me permission, I'll be strong on your behalf. But I'm not just going to do it because I want you to know that you have free will. And he wants to come in, and he wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to live inside of you, and he wants you to acknowledge him in all things. That's our good Heavenly Father. Now, our adversary is just the opposite. He also wants to maintain and take control of your life. But he doesn't come out and say, look, I'm a loving devil, and I'm going to... Um, I want control of your life so that I can destroy you. He doesn't come out and say that. He's very, very uh, shrewd. He's been studying the human mindset for 6,000 years, and he's got us down pretty good. But I think the Lord, Job is a good example of this. He could only get to Job as much as God would let him do. You see, God is always sovereign. and uh, But there was a test that was going to happen in Job's life. Job passed the test, we all know that. But what we see here is that the devil wanted in. The devil wanted in on Simon Peter, right? Simon, come here, I want to talk to you. The devil wants you, but don't worry. I've prayed for you that your faith would not fall. So whose faith? The person's faith, Peter, would not fail. And so all that to say this, um, the Holy Spirit can't come and fill you unless you're hungry for the Holy Spirit. Some people just aren't. Without exception, I don't, well, this is a sidetrack, but it's a good one. Without exception, every one of the gifts that God has given by the Holy Spirit, except one, is giving, been given to you to build up somebody else. Now, what if you don't have any desire to build up anybody else besides yourself? And you're very self-centered, and you really don't think about other people. You're only thinking about yourself. What need do you have for the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely none, except one. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 4, says that the gift of tongues is for self-edification. That one you can just be as selfish with as you want to. And um, speaking in tongues and praying in tongues and singing in tongues is for self-edification. But the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 14, not on Sunday morning. Um, Don't you speak out on tongues on Sunday morning because he said there might be a setting where you're going to have visitors come in and they're going to hear you and see you and think you're crazy. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says. 
the last verse of 1 Corinthians 14, is all things are to be done decently and in order. Now, Luke gives us insight in verse 11 here. How much more will your father give good things to those who ask him? Well, Luke says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit if you ask him? But my question is, and an example of this is, in Acts, when Philip was in Samaria, and the town sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer, uh, he was, I like to call him the big man on campus. Everybody was impressed with his ability to do um, spiritual things, but nothing compared to what Philip was doing. And when he heard Philip and saw Philip, well, he believed and he was baptized. But then it says, but the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. They were saved. They were baptized in water, but they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Philip calls for Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem, and they laid their hands on them, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when Simon the sorcerer saw that, he was, whoa, here's 20 bucks. Show me how to do that. And Peter rebuked him right on his spot. He says, your money perishes with you because you thought you could buy the Holy Spirit with money, you better repent. (laughs) And you better do it quick, or bad things are going to happen to you. He backed off quickly. He says, well, don't do that. And he, he backed down. Simon's motive was what? Well, he was a big man on campus before, and he, now Philip was, and now he wants, he wants to be able to do what Philip does. See, wrong motive. And he says, you're not going to get it. Your money perishes with you. And don't think that God would ever honor that. Uh, there's a whole Bible study there again, but we'll just uh, go on to the next <clears throat> one verse, or the golden rule, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And there's just such common sense here in how you, how you want to be treated. You know, treat people that way. And um, again, um, it comes back to you as you cast it out so it comes back to you. 13 and 14, I call the narrow way. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. What I want to emphasize here is what Um, altar calls don't explain when you give an altar call in coming to the Lord. Even as successful as Billy Graham is with um, Just As I Am, singing quietly in the background, um, I wish more would be explained about just walking the altar. And it's counting the cost. You need to be able to explain to a person, um, no man can follow me unless they pick up their cross, die daily, and follow me. And we don't tell them, hey, this is going to be difficult. When you make a decision to follow the Lord, it's not easy, but it's difficult, and it's narrow instead of broad. And um, I I just think of this verse here, especially the Lord being honest by saying that it's a difficult life to live. 
Uh, I hate to say this because I'm such a fan of this person for so many years, but um, to my dismay, <laughs> um, Bob Dylan is endorsing and making um, a love song album for the gay lesbian community. And it broke my heart. And I'm a big Dylan fan, always have been. Best Christian albums ever made were Saved, Shot of Love, Slow Train of Coming. And Bob started out so well uh, when he got saved because they didn't put him in a spotlight. He actually went to one of our Bible colleges in-house in North Hollywood. He um, had to take all the assignments. He had to take all the lessons. And he, he was rooted and grounded before he went out and did 170 Christ, straight Christian concerts. You can still get his testimony of Bob Dylan, the Gospel Years, uh, him being rooted and grounded. Problem is, he's Bob Dylan. And when, when you have that much fame, it's hard to sit down and become a part of the local body. Good place for an amen. Happened to Dion, too. He was in Calvary Chapel in, in Florida. But people won't leave him alone because he was Dion. Some of your younger people are just looking at me like blank eyed. You don't have a clue who I'm talking about, do you? <laughs> well, he was very famous in the 60s and 70s. And he got saved, but he went back to Roman Catholicism. And now, all these years later, when it says difficult, uh, a, a person of the statute, a stature, I should say, of Bob Dylan, I went online today. I had I couldn't just take it from rumor. I had to Google it. I saw the album. All these old songs he's readjusted for a gay lesbian wedding. And my heart just broke. My good friend Warren Smith called me because he's a big Dylan fan and we talk about Dylan songs all the time. Can't do that anymore. Now I have to um, man up. And when a brother or sister gets off track... I've, I've quoted Bob publicly many, many times from the pulpit. Now I have to do an about-face, say he's, he is uh, compromised. And he's not only compromised, but his influence. Um, just because of the stature of who he is, uh, is going to affect a lot of people. It's gonna, it gave, how does it say, it gave, it'll give the enemy um, great cause for rejoicing. But it grieves me to the, grieves me to the core. And I'm flashing back on the funeral we did on on Saturday. We're in Ecclesiastes, and it says sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter, yeah, because it'll make the heart better. But when you know that's not going to preach in Joel Osteen's church, okay? Sorrow is better than laughter because he's always got the big smile on. Everything's happy, clappy. Everything's fine. No, everything's not fine. What I just told you is not fine. It's heartbreaking. And um, um, we, where, whether you realize it or not, every person here, you are being watched and you're influential. Well, you may not think you are, but you are. People are watching you. And um, we have to get to, the, get to the place, no matter who the person is, that we're Bereans, and you can't say, well, Pastor Dwight said, well, forget about what Pastor Dwight said. That doesn't matter. What does the word of God say? 
And if people come in and they want counseling or whatever, people have come in and said, do I want your opinion on this? I said, I sure hope not. <laughs> no, you, what you want is what does the word of God have to say about this particular situation? I understand you know your Bible. So what does God, God's word say about this particular situation? So when I take that litmus test and hold it up against what Bob just did, I have to compare it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, Don't be deceived. Uh, neither adulterer, nor fornicator, nor homosexual, liar, stealer, thief, is going to go to heaven. So you have the word of God here, and you have uh, the social trends, and that's why um, I expect the true body of Christians to become smaller and smaller and smaller. And I expect, as uh, the Lord said, uh, that in the last days the way there's, there will be a way that's broad. So i got glad I got that off my chest. Now we can go on. Verse 15 and 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Are they on the take? Are they like Simon? Um, I'm going to really drive this point home tonight as we look at Nahum in 2 Kings. And, um, but I need to finish out uh, this chapter here first. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, everybody says, well, yes, I'm a Christian. And yes, they go to church. But the Lord says, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and then mighty wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So again, um, I believe the motive here is a social gospel. That's the danger that I see in the church today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is preaching the gospel. Many of the major Christian organizations have been slip-sliding away over the last 10, 15 years. A good example, World Vision. good example, Gospel for Asia, which we invested in heavily. Four of our families, five of our families from the church served 20, 25 years plus on an organization that's gone to a social gospel. Even worse, it's turned into a cult. And it breaks my heart to say that, because I was, I was actually the first Calvary Chapel pastor to beat K.P. Yohannan. I introduced him to Pastor Chuck in 81. And um, after being the largest successful mission organization in the world, now has Francis Chan on his board, who's the biggest social gospel contender out there today. Um, you're not 
you won't be familiar with the name. I purposely dropped the name on purpose so that you could know who Francis Chan is. And he latched on to um, a very successful um, worldwide ministry and uh, turned it into a social gospel. What do you mean, Dwight? Social gospel. Doing good things, but not presenting the gospel. Um, and those are, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, I'm watch, watching the news tonight. I'm watching the Green Bay Packers play, play a baseball game for charity. Hey, all right, good, good guys. That's great. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As long as they're not out there saying, well, we're out here doing the work of the Lord. No, you're not. You're being nice guys, and you're going out and doing a, raising a couple bucks for, for a good cause, and that's great. You don't have any problems with that at all. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel offends. The gospel brings division. And um, so the Lord says there will be those who thought they were doing it all right, and he's going to say, well, yeah, but I, I had no relationship with you at all. Guys and gals, you need to be able to say, I know the voice of the Lord. And I know when the Holy Spirit is grieved and convicted inside of me, and I know when he's pleased. And I know when it's him, and I know when it's me. And some people who aren't born again uh, have all the outward actions down, like we read here. It's a pretty good litmus test here. At the end of the day, they stand before the Lord, and the Lord doesn't know who they are. And the chapter, parable of the two builders, therefore, and this is how he's going to end the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Um, the whole idea of what real wisdom is is the, the fear of the Lord, we're told, is the beginning of wisdom. And here... When a person hears the teachings of the Lord and applies them practically, he's not going to be any different from any other person. He's going to go through the same um, experiences, same storms in life. The only difference at the end of the day, um, because he built his house on the word of God, which doesn't change, which abides forever, and that was his foundation, that's why the Lord can say, this is all going to be gone. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not this book. So if you build your life, and it's important to maintain that um, daily devotion, daily time with the Lord, uh, because if you can't, um, and if you don't, <clears throat> it's easy for the enemy to slip in. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, well... Uh, no foundation, and a house built on sand, that one will fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished. He wasn't mealy-mousing around. 
When Jesus spoke, he spoke with an authority, and it caught and captured the people. This is different. This sounds like John the Baptist, only even stronger yet. And he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. We come to the end of the Beatitudes, and we begin the first. We were we did a lot of this on Sunday, but I want to um, really dive into um, the Old Testament here. Let's read our text from Sunday, chapter 8. Now, when he had come down from the mountain, now the great multitudes follow him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord... If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus put out his hand and said, I am willing. And this is where we got sidetracked on Sunday and just talked about just how good our God is. This man had never been touched. It was forbidden for him to be touched. He had announced from a distance, unclean, unclean. He hadn't had a human, emotional touch for who knows how long. And everybody knew by touching him, uh, it immediately made Jesus unclean. Or if Jesus heals him, then he is immediately acknowledged as someone who can do a miracle. And that's exactly what happened. He touched him, and immediately his leprosy left him. And Jesus said, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift of Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, if you weren't here on Sunday, just jot down now Leviticus chapter 14. The whole chapter is an in-depth analysis of a leper who's been cleansed from an incurable disease that the Bible says in the day of the cleansing of the leopard. So in the law, there was provision for the miraculous. And the whole chapter is, uh, we read, I think, the first eight verses, how they were to take an offering. Uh, a bird, two birds, kill one, sprinkle the other one with the blood, and let them go free. It's a beautiful picture of uh, the blood of Christ and being sprinkled upon you and I, and we're the bird that becomes free. Now, what I want to do is to take, or this is where I wanted to go on Sunday, but I knew I would not have the time, but it's Wednesday, so now I do have the time. Before we go to Second Kings, I want to turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 27. Eh, I'm going to go back, back up to verse 24. So we're in Luke chapter 4, verse 24. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. Now, we don't learn that from the Old Testament, we didn't know the time frame. This is the first time we know the time frame, that it was three and a half years. Now, this is important. James is going to repeat it in James chapter 5. He's going to say, Elijah was an ordinary man, just like you and just like me. And yet, when he prayed that it would not rain, it did not rain for the space of three and a half years. Again, two times in the New Testament we're told that, but all we read about in the Old Testament, when Elijah actually did it with Ahab, he just says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. But it doesn't give us the duration of time. Now, why is that important? Because Elijah is going to come again. 
That's the last verse of the Old Testament. It says, before the tribulation comes, I'm going to send you Elijah. And then you go to Revelation chapter 11, and you read about the two witnesses and how long their ministry is for, 1,260 days. Well, how long is that? Exactly three and a half years. And it all just fits together just perfectly like a glove. And um, um, those sort of treasures, I like to call them in the scriptures, increase my faith. Now, let's take it a little bit farther. Verse 26, And none of them was Elijah sent except from Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the times of Elijah the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Nahum the Syrian. All right, let's go to that story, Second Kings chapter 5. And I'm actually going to go through the whole chapter because um, we are talking about beware of false prophets and um, you can, you'll know them by their fruits. What's their motive? That's all in this chapter and that's why I want to go here. All right, chapter 5 of Second. Kings, it says, Now Nahum, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Nahum's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he'd heal him of his leprosy. And Nahum went and told his master, saying, thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. And so the king of Israel said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing, which would have been worth a lot of money, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, I have sent Nahum, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, consider and see how he, he seeks to make a quarrel with me. He's saying, this guy's just trying to pick a fight. He's got leprosy. Nobody can be cured of leprosy. And he's just, you know, he's pulling strings here to pick a fight. And so it was when Elijah, the man of God, heard it, that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Nahum, with his horses and chariots, stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a message to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Now this ticks the king off. And he says, He became furious. And he went away, and he said, the guy didn't even come out to say hello to me and stand and call on the name of his, the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. I mean, he didn't come up and do this great big show. 
He just says, no, just go down to the Jordan, dip seven times, and, and you'll be healed. And the king isn't buying it, and he gets ticked, and he's, he turns around, and he's on his way home. And then, aren't, uh, verse 12, are not the Anaba and the Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. And a servant came up to him, tried to calm him down, and spoke to him and said, My father, I mean, if the prophet had told you to do something great, you would have done it. Well, how much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? In other words, what do you got to lose? Just do it. And so he did. He went down dipped seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God and all of his aides, and he came and stood before him and says, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in the earth except in Israel. Now, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Nahab said then, If not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to another god, but only to you and your Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Remen to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Remen. When I bow down in the temple, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And he's saying, I'm really not worshiping him. I'm really worshiping that one. And then he said to him, go in peace. So we departed a short distance. And the reason I wanted to read the full chapter is what I'm getting into next. But Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God's, uh, said, look, my master spared Naaman uh, the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I'm going to run after him and take something from him. I'm going to cash in on this one. And so Gehazi pursued Naaman, and Naaman saw him running, and so he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is everything okay? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Oh, please give me a talent of silver and a couple changes of clothes. Liar, liar, pants on fire. He's on the take, and now when the Lord says you'll know them by their fruits, all of a sudden we become fruit inspectors. Does it smell stinky around here or what? Yes. So Nahum said, please, take two talents instead of one. And he urged him and bowed him uh, changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of him. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the man go, and they departed. Now when he went and stood before his master, Elijah said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? Ooh, it's getting uncomfortable. And he said, You know, I didn't go anywhere. And then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? 
Is it time to receive money, to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female servants? Is it time to take advantage of the Lord, make money off of him? Therefore, the leprosy of Nahum shall cling to you and your descendants forever. What does the Lord say? Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. That which he tried to get away with, thinking the Lord wasn't aware, the very leprosy falls on this man. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your sins forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. There's a lot of Bible study in that. That's where I wanted to go on Sunday, and I praise the Lord for Wednesday nights because we're able to go there. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. The centurion. We talked about him, but we will read it again, and I'll comment brief, briefly on it. 5 through 13. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. I think the word is already out about the leper who was healed, because we read in Luke that... Um, um, that he went and he spread the message all abroad when the Lord told him not to do it. He said, Lord, my servant is lying at home. He's paralyzed. He's dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, well, I'll come and I will heal him. Again, he is, the Lord is willing to be strong on your behalf. He wants to have your permission to work on your behalf. And then the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you would come under my roof, but all you have to do is speak a word and my servant will be healed. For you see, I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go. I said to the other one, come on over here. To another one, come. And he comes and to the servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, no, not even in Israel. Now, on Sunday, I made mention that this was great faith. He touched the leopard straight on. Here, he touches the centurion's servant from a distance. He doesn't even go into his house. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Here, the Lord is saying that um, this man understands that he has authority over other people. And it's respected. And he understood that Jesus, because of what he did with the leper, has authority over disease, either close or far away. Your word is good enough. And we're going to transfer from that. We're still in Capernaum. And this is all in one area. And also what Luke mentions here is that it's not mentioned in Matthew. It tells us that if you weren't here on Sunday, that he built a synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum. And when you go to Capernaum, and we'll be there in November, that synagogue or the foundation 
that this man made is still there to this day. And if there's one place on the planet where you know for sure that Jesus stood in this particular spot, it's at that synagogue in Capernaum. All right, well, um, 100 feet at most from the synagogue is a place that um, they've built a Catholic church that looks like a flying saucer, and it's got a glass floor on it, and you can go in the Catholic church and look down, and there is Peter's house. That is a D site. Now, there's A sites, B sites, and C sites, but when you get to the Ds, you're really out there. So they have no idea where Peter's house is. And, um, but Peter did live in Capernaum. And we read here that Peter was married. Now, when Jesus had come to Peter's house, he saw his wife, Peter's wife's mother's sick, mother-in-law, with a fever, And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... Now, again, here's one of the first places, again, where we're talking fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. He did the healing. Why? Because Isaiah said he himself took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. When he saw, when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. And then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto me, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Now let me explain this one here. This man's father had not just died. What he's saying is, Lord, let me stay with my dad until he does die. And then when he dies, then I will come and follow you. That's what's being said here. And the Lord says, no, let the dead bury the dead. I'm here now. And if you want to follow me, then come and follow me now. And when he gotten into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly there was a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves But he was asleep. Oh, I'd love to have seen this one. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him and saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, Lord, isn't it obvious? We're dying here. And yet, um, what basically, he's rebuking them. Now, we mentioned about the centurion, Right? He had great faith. What does he say about his own disciples? They have little faith. Now, I tried to stress this point. I can't really stress it enough. I tried to on Sunday. Where in Luke's account, in Luke 8, verse 22, if you're taking notes, 
Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and said, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. The question, is there anything in this universe that's going to stop that boat from getting from point A to point B? Absolutely not. Impossible. It has to go there. Why? Because Jesus said so. And he expected his disciples to take that, just that face value. Oh, the Lord says we're going to the other side. Okay. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to die instead. (laughs) And the Lord wakes up, you know, and he goes, guys, why are you so fearful? Why do you have such little faith? And, of course, the application is you're going to be in storms. I mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on Sunday. We call it going through a fiery trial, right? Well, they were literally in a fiery furnace that was so hot that the people that threw them in, they all died. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he says, hold it a second, I see four guys sitting there, and he looks like the Son of God. I wonder how he knew what the Son of God is supposed to look like. But they came out, says their hair wasn't singed, they didn't smell like smoke, and the Lord was in them, with them, in the fire. All right, well, the application is obvious. The Lord says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the age. So my question is, what's there to freak out about? Yeah, but you don't know my situation. Could it have been any worse than this one here? Could it have been any worse than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The Lord delivered them out of them all. Even when we don't think he's doing a very good job of it. You're sure that your garden angel is taking a coffee break? Right about now. Where are you when I need you, Lord? Well, he's right there. Kind of watching, just like you watched Job. I wonder if I take it all away. What's Job going to do then? That was the test. Lost his kids, that's pretty personal. That's pretty heart-wrenching. What are you going to do, Job? The devil was testing him. Job just said, naked I came, naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All this should mean nothing. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, be a good soldier. What do soldiers do when they become soldiers? They have to leave everything behind so they can be under authority so they can get a job done. So Paul says, Timothy, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ and do not get entangled with the affairs of this world. Is it easy to get entangled with the affairs of this world? Oh, yeah. You know what untangles them? Being in a good Bible study all the time. It keeps true north, true north. It reminds us we're strangers and pilgrims that this isn't home. Good place for an amen. This is not home. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the reality. And that reality comes smacking in the day you die because you can't take none of it with you. So we find here, he, he reproves them. He arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea. So he has authority over disease. He has authority over sickness. He can heal by touching. He can heal from a distance. But now he's got control and authority over the elements themselves. And he gets up and he yells at the wind and he says, quiet, rebukes the wind. And immediately there's a peace. 
And the disciples marvel and say, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he had come to the other side, well, there was a reason that they left point A to get point B. And we're going to find this as we go through the Gospels. The Lord always finds himself going to a spot where he is needed. We're going to see next week that, um, or as we go through Matthew, that the Pharisees purposely set him up. They put a guy in the synagogue with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And it was a trap. They knew full well, as soon as Jesus walked in, he'd, he'd look around. Okay, who's got the greatest need here? Who needs my help? Oh, that guy over there with the withered hand. So beelines it right for him, heals him, and the scribes and the Pharisees are right on him because it was the Sabbath. You can't do that on a Sabbath. And um, my point there is as we get here, here are two men that are tormented beyond words, demon possession. We had come to the other side, to the the country of the Gadarenes. They met him, two demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, "What have you to? What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time?" Now, a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of the swine. And he said, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea, perished in the water. And... Again, the the account of the other Gospels is important here because one of them, after he was set free, uh, tells us they actually were chained, but the chains couldn't hold them. It's supernatural strength. And people who are demon-possessed have um, had extra uh, strength and People were would not go anywhere near them for fear of them. And one of them actually wanted to follow and be and follow and go with the Lord. And the Lord says, No, I want you to go home. He said when they came and the people saw them, they they were clothed and they were in their right mind. And he said, Lord, please let me go with you. He says, No, I want you to go home. And I want you to tell the great things that God has done. Everybody knew who these guys were, but they only knew them as the two men that were demon-possessed that could break chains with their, their own strength from the demons that were in them. And Lord says, no, just go home and tell the great things that the Lord has done for you. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came to, the, to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. We'll close with just a thought here. I call, I call this killing two birds with one stone. First of all, these, the land of the Gadarenes, these are still of the tribe of Gad. Okay, they're Jews. 
Jews are not supposed to be raising pigs. It's not kosher. All right, so how do you kill two birds with one stone? Well, you cast the demons out of the man, that's one stone, and you cause them to go into the pigs, and they run. They should have been there in the first place. They run down into the water, and they all drowned, and you have your first case of devil ham ever taking place, ever there at the sea. Never mind. Good way to end the study on a light note. When you're talking demon possession, and so on and so forth, and we're at our time, and we made it through seven and eight. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, how great thou art. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your nature and your character that you're willing. We thank you for the freedom of free will. Uh, Lord, help us um, after tonight realizing that you want to be strong on our behalf if we'll only ask you to. We can be baptized in the Holy Spirit if we have a willingness to use that gift to serve others. And we thank you, Lord, that um, your word trumps everything. And if you say that we're in the boat with you, what really do we have to fear? And Lord, when we do find ourselves fretting or fearing, help us remember the stilling of the, the seas and how you actually rebuked the disciples. You were with them. Nothing could have happened to that boat. And um, nothing's going to happen to us unless it's your sovereign will to allow it to happen. So in closing, we pray thy will be done in our lives tonight. And we thank you for the gospel of Matthew. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.